When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of presidential campaign curiosities. I'm John Dickerson. Did Dwight Eisenhower snooker his way into the presidency, or did he prevail over a despicable attempt by his opponent, Senator Robert Taft, to subvert democracy through a theft of delegates? We'll tell the story of Me Tooism, the Texas Steel, and the star turn of a man known as the Wizard of Ooze. The second chapter in our look at the 1952 Republican Convention. In a moment, but first, a word from our sponsor. If you're listening to this podcast, you love the presidents. How they get there, what they do in office, well, you're in luck because The Great Courses has a new offering called The Great Presidents. It's a an examination of 12 of the great presidents in American history. It starts with George Washington, of course, goes to Lincoln, to FDR. And you can look at what these men who struggle and fight so hard through these campaigns do when they actually get in office. The Great Courses has a special offer for Whistle Stop listeners. You can get 80% off of this program, The Great Presidents, or any of their other eight top programs, just go to thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. That's thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. Our whistle stop today is an actual whistle stop with a train moving through a station. It's July 2nd and we're in Lincoln, Nebraska. Dwight Eisenhower had planned to watch the Republican convention taking place in Chicago from his Denver headquarters, but now he's telling reporters that he's boarded a special train and he's headed for Chicago. He only entered the presidential race officially a month ago, a reluctant candidate, but now the general's marching hard, pledging that he's going to Chicago to, quote, have a hand in the fight. He said he's going to roar clear across the country to keep our party clean and fit to lead the nation. He's deploring smoke-filled rooms, the star chamber methods, chicanery, and he says that he's shocked that the National Republican Committee would seat contested delegates on a temporary basis. He's demanding fair play. Eisenhower is accusing his opponent, Robert Taft, of stealing the delegates from a series of southern states, particularly from Texas. In order to combat that, Eisenhower is trying to make a national moral case. Taft has control of the party. Eisenhower is trying to appeal to a larger audience, to people outside of the party insiders. Jack Porter, who is the head of the pro-Eisenhower delegation, has declared, quote, This Texas steel is the rottenest thing in American politics. Hitler never did anything rottener. It wasn't just those engaged in the fight who were offering hyperbole. Arthur Kroc, the New York Times columnist, wrote, quote, There is a stratum of grim and possibly even lethal conflict here as the Republican Party delegates are about to meet. Lethal. The fight is over stolen delegates, and it's also a fight for the soul of the Republican Party between Eisenhower and Robert Taft. The old guard conservatives say Eisenhower is too moderate and wants to spread America too thin overseas. Quote, Eisenhower is the candidate of those who would have American boys die as cannon fodder thousands of miles across the ocean, says one of Taft's men. 
Claire Booth Luce, who was an Eisenhower delegate and wife of the powerful Time magazine publisher, argued that because Taft was seen as an isolationist, Eisenhower's defeat, quote, would be taken by European communists as a signal that America was going home. It would give Stalin the only real political victory. The New York Times ran three editorials entitled, Mr. Taft Can't Win, arguing that Taft was too conservative for a general election. Taft, of course, was arguing the opposite side of the case, that if the Republican Party finally nominated a conservative, they would win, capturing that huge silent majority out there. When everybody arrived in Chicago to the International Amphitheater, the whole business stunk, not because of the bitter political fight or the controversy over the stolen delegates. It smelled like bull manure because the amphitheater had originally been built for livestock shows, and in the heat, it was stewing up a stink. It reached 110 degrees in the working press rooms below the stockyards. In the convention hall hung an enormous portrait of Lincoln from the rafters, and outside, for the first time at a convention, buzzed little blimps with Ike written on the side of them. The delegates filed in to folding chairs that were bolted together, offering, as one person described it, little regard for the dignity or comfort of the individual delegate. It was a sardine tin of humanity, and by the time it was all over, the delegates would listen to 150,000 words by one estimate, sometimes going until one or two in the morning. Here's the political situation for Taft as he arrived, as described by the journalist William White in his book, The Taft Story. In July of 1952, the bitterness of the 25th Republican National Convention had not been matched for 40 years. In 1912, Bob Taft's father, President William Howard Taft, had gone to the same city of Chicago determined to smash the pretensions of a more popular and more liberal but less Republican challenger called Theodore Roosevelt. Bob Taft went there in 1952 in determination to smash the pretensions of a more popular and relatively more liberal but less Republican challenger, Dwight Eisenhower. The father and his managers had held the party machinery in iron grip. So did the son 40 years later. Like father, like son. On July 6, when the party functionaries were still arriving, Taft walked into a press meeting carrying a huge bundle of telegrams, 530 of them from delegates who'd said they were going to back Taft. By Monday morning, Taft had 607 such assurances. That was more than he needed to win that final nominating vote. This wasn't all he had going for him. He had the whole structure filled with his supporters. Both the temporary and permanent committee were pledged to him. He had the platform committee, the credentials committee, majority on the national committee, and all the speakers were his supporters, including General MacArthur. His aides had even picked the music that was to be played and the singers who would sing. There seemed no way he could be turned back. In the days before primaries were widespread and television contributed to swaying public opinion, Taft's way was the way you did it, through playing the inside game And part of playing that game was the explicit promise of patronage jobs for those who played ball with Taft. Taft was known as Mr. Republican, the Republican of the United States, as White described him. So it was Mr. Republican versus Mr. America, Mr. America being Eisenhower. As Eisenhower was on his train trip to the convention, he stopped on July 4th for an NBC program called We the People, celebrating Independence Day. So if Mr. America was going to beat Mr. Republican, the only way he was going to do it was by creating a moral case for this theft of 
delegates in Texas and other southern states. Convincing party insiders that they should drop their loyalty to the machine and to those jobs they might get under Taft and favor Eisenhower for the sake of simple fairness. So while Taft was brandishing those telegraph pledges from delegates, Eisenhower forces had mailed a broadside, 24 by 36 inches in size, to every convention delegate, there were about 1,200 of them, to every convention delegate containing 18 to 20 letters of protest about the Texas Steel. The Texas Steel being that competition in Texas, where Eisenhower turned down independents and Democrats to vote in the caucuses and primaries, and Taft and his inside men fielded their own slate of delegates. That was to be adjudicated at the convention, which leads us to the convention madness itself. There are four important rounds of battle, and it gets a tiny bit complicated, so hang with me. Three of those rounds will be over these contested Southern delegates, the Texas Steel delegates and delegates from a few other Southern states, Georgia being another big one. And then there's a fourth round, which is the actual vote on who's going to be the nominee of the Republican Party. So they all arrive into Chicago, and the first round on the first day is a vote for what Eisenhower called the Fair Play Amendment. The Southern delegates, which were under dispute, were they going to be those seated for Eisenhower or those seated for Taft, had already been seated on a temporary basis. Remember, Taft controls the temporary committee. The credential committee hasn't met to sanctify them, but nevertheless, these temporary delegates are seated. One of the votes that they were going to be allowed to participate in was whether they were kosher as delegates. Eisenhower said that those delegates shouldn't be allowed to vote on their own status as permanent delegates. It was like allowing the accused to sit in the jury box, he said. So this was before the convention even begins. Eisenhower says he wants those disputed delegates not to have a say in their own outcome. Eisenhower and his men were so effective in making this moral case, the signs blaring, thou shalt not steal, trucks going through the streets with a PA system saying, thou shalt not steal, that it knocked Taft off course. He had so planned the normal way of doing things, that this kind of public fight befuddled him. Here's the way White wrote about it. A kind of evangelistic fever swept Chicago. The Eisenhower men paraded about, shaking at the Taft people signs that read, Thou shalt not steal. Taft, working 20 hours a day at his headquarters in the Conrad Hilton Hotel, blinked under this brandishing of the commandment. He was not stunned. He was simply and wholly uncomprehending. The whole Chicago proceeding had turned into one from which he instinctively fled. He was enormously uncomfortable in the face of any emotional displays. And in this regard, Chicago was at that time a great bath of emotion. He did not have the faintest realization of the movement that had gone like a brush fire through Texas, a movement not simply to select General Eisenhower over Senator Taft, but to elect Eisenhower to the presidency. So under this great pressure, Eisenhower saying that there must be fairness, Taft trying to hold on to his delegates, the Taft team started to fall apart. Taft started to say, well, he would allow some of the Eisenhower delegates from Texas. But Senator Lodge, who was running the show for Eisenhower, said he wouldn't budge. He didn't want the compromise. He had to keep this a moral fight about right and wrong. A compromise would let Taft off the hook. Like it was only a clerical dispute, not a titanic battle over the very foundation of honest dealing and sagacious constancy. Quote, it's never right to compromise with dishonesty, said Lodge. 
Former President Herbert Hoover, a Taft man, weighed in with a suggestion that maybe an impartial committee could be appointed to look over this delegate matter. Lodge said no, that would be improper to have a backroom arrangement cheat the American people. For Lodge, only total and utter surrender by Taft would not offend motherhood and chastity and fair dealing. And even that might not have worked because the whole point of accepting no deal from Taft was to build this case for Eisenhower. Lodge was not just fighting for those Southern delegates. He was trying to build support among all the other delegates for that final vote on who the party nominee would be. Then Ike got an assist from Republican governors meeting down in Houston. 23 of the 25 Republican governors wrote in a letter saying that if the convention didn't accept the fair play amendment, quote, the Republican nominee will enter a vital and difficult campaign under a serious moral cloud. So this wasn't just a assist to Eisenhower's argument. It was a sign that Taft was losing support in the party structure if the governors were abandoning it. So when the fair play amendment came to a vote, the Taft men were still trying to come up with some kind of a compromise. They started to try to use parliamentary maneuvers to wriggle out from under this moral case being made against them. At this point, the fact that the convention delegates were smashed in together on top of each other, barely able to hear what was being said from the rostrum, played a role. They didn't know what was being voted on. And this is what it sounded like when it was even being debated. A Taft man rose and said, I move Mr. Chairman to amend the Langley substitute by changing the figure 68 as appear in line 9, striking out those figures and substituting in place, therefore, the figure 61, and further to decide from the accompanying list of delegates, the seven delegates from the District of Louisiana, and on and on and on in that kind of jargon. The Taft forces were trying to make a last-minute change in this fair play amendment. Nobody could understand what was going on. They knew right and wrong, however. And so when the vote came and it was time for the entire convention to vote on the fair play amendment, all 1,200 of them, Eisenhower won. The controversial delegates from the South would not be allowed to vote on their own status. This was a tiny specific point, but it was a huge victory for Eisenhower over Taft who had so arranged things and arranged affairs for himself, this was the first evidence that Eisenhower, through making a public case, could appeal to those 1,200 delegates and overcome all the careful planning of the inside guy. So then the fight moves to the second round of our four-round battle, and it moves onto turf that's far more favorable for Taft. It shrinks from the 1,200 delegates who voted on the Fair Play Amendment now to the Credential Committee, filled with party insiders, who are all, or a majority of whom, are Taft men. They are going to determine the question of what to do about those Southern delegates. Now, why was that important? Because those Southern delegates, if more of them are seated for Taft, those will be the people who will ultimately vote on who the party nominee will be. So Eisenhower has to find a way to take that momentum he built in the Fair Play Amendment, built in large part on his national standing, on the fact that television cameras were rolling and everyone was watching. And it was hard to pull off a steal in public while all the cameras were there. So Eisenhower and his men had to find a way to make the credential committee to open it up. So they demanded that cameras be allowed in. And the party chairman, handpicked by Taft, said no. So the television cameras focused just on the brass knobs of the doors for the viewers at home behind which the credential committee was meeting. Senator Hugh Scott who was one of the men who had helped try to convince Eisenhower to run, stood in front of those doors and spoke to the camera. He said, those doors are locked and they are being kept locked. Why? Because inside are people who are trying to do in secret what they don't dare do in public. 
They do not want you to see them deny the rightful claims of delegates to sit in this convention and vote for Eisenhower. Those doors are not closed against the press. They are closed against you, the people. In 1948, fewer than 1% of American homes had TV sets. In 1952, that number was up to 34%. This was the first convention to be televised, and the Eisenhower men were using it for all they could. The debate in the Credential Committee started at 10 o'clock central time and went close to midnight, debating each state whether the Eisenhower or the Taft delegates should be seated. Because Taft controlled the room, he won. So now we have had two rounds of the four-round battle. The first round goes to Eisenhower in the 1,200-delegate vote on the Fair Play Amendment. The second round goes to Taft on the inside fight. But now the fight would move back to that larger room, the 1,200 delegates. The third round of the fight would take place in the entire Republican convention, and they would vote to ratify what had just happened in their credential committee. The Taft men knew they were on weaker turf there, so they decided to throw a roundhouse punch. That drama came on Wednesday, July 10th. The person they put on stage to make the case for Taft, why those delegates who had been selected in the credential committee should be seated for Taft, that argument was to be made by the mellifluous Senator Edward Dirksen, who would go on to become the majority leader of the Senate. He was from Illinois, and he reportedly gargled with Pond's cold cream, which is what contributed in part to his idiosyncratic way of speaking. He spoke to the convention on Taft's behalf and tried to argue to those 1,200 delegates that they shouldn't follow Eisenhower because it would ruin the party in the way that the party had been led down this path for the last several elections by supporting a moderate, only to see that moderate go down in defeat. They called Dirksen the Wizard of Ooze, and you'll hear why. Now I say from an earnest heart that I trust tonight we will not commit suicide and impair the chances of victory that are like something bright and iridescent upon the horizon right now. I say it with earnestness because most of my mature life has been given to the Republican Party. Dirksen was saying the party was in danger of committing suicide, and he was trying to stop it. He argued if the whole convention overturned that vote in the credential committee, if the whole convention overturned the party apparatus, it would send a horrible message to the country that the Republican party structure was corrupt. And therefore, if that party structure nominated Taft, that Taft was corrupt. It was something the Republican Party could never recover from. And this is a party that had been out of the White House for a long time. Raising to his most emotional peak of his oration, Dirksen raised his finger and pointed at Dewey, the governor of New York. He'd been the Republican nominee for the last two cycles. And Dirksen argued that Dewey's two losses as a nominee was a foreshadowing of what would happen if the entire convention supported Eisenhower, another squishy moderate. So we'll hear from Dirksen one more time. And the minority report he's talking about is the report that would overturn that vote in the credential committee and give the delegates to Eisenhower. Re-examine your hearts before you take this action and support the minority report because we followed you before and you took us down the road to defeat and don't do this to us. (laughs) 
pandemonium ensued when Dirksen said this. Remember, again, this is the first televised convention. And this didn't really do much help for Taft. In fact, things got so out of hand that William Clune, a member of the Michigan delegation, collapsed from nervous exhaustion. And he had to be carried from the hall and given emergency medical treatment. So Dirksen makes his case, and now the voting in the third round of our battle begins. This is the whole convention voting on whether what the credentials committee did behind closed doors was kosher. And as those votes start happening state by state, Taft realizes he's losing. The whole convention supports not the decision of the credential committee, but the minority report, the Eisenhower position. This is the first time in the Republican process that the entire convention has undone what their betters in the credential committee have decided. And as it starts to get overthrown, Taft tries to make deals again with Eisenhower, offering ultimately to seat the delegates from Texas. He's giving in finally to somehow try to salvage some shred of the moral high ground, to try and bleed from Eisenhower his moral standing. If Taft gives in, then maybe he can in that final fourth round, in that final vote over who the nominee is going to be, Taft still has some kind of standing. But at this point, it's over. It's too late. Things are so bad for Taft that the old guard briefly thinks about trying to push General MacArthur forward as a nominee to go up against Eisenhower in that fourth round of voting, the voting on who the actual nominee is going to be. Finally, the vote comes for who the party is going to nominate, and General Eisenhower wins on the first ballot, 845 to 280. Eisenhower immediately began the work of trying to repair the party. He called Taft right away, and the two men met. I have just completed a call on Senator Taft. I went over uh, to him in order to extend to him an invitation to cooperate with me from now on. And he agreed to do so very heartily and in a warm-hearted fashion that pleased me immensely. The columnist Walter Lippmann wrote about Taft's defeat this way, making the case that this wasn't just a defeat for a man, but it was a defeat for an entire old way of doing business in the Republican Party. Quote, through the use of television, the Eisenhower managers succeeded in demonstrating how much the control of the party organization depends on politicians from states and territories where the Republicans are not, in fact, a political party at all. There has been a devastating exposure of an old skeleton in the cupboard namely that the party bureaucracy and management does not rest on a popular basis. That's the way Lippmann saw it. The conservatives saw it an entirely different way. For the fourth time in succession, the GOP had turned to the candidate with the best perceived chance of victory in the autumn instead of the politician who reflected the actual philosophy of people in the party. Of course, unlike the previous three times, Eisenhower would go on to win and the GOP would take control of the House both houses of Congress, but never mind, the loss would have conservatives furious and launch basically the modern conservative movement. As National Review publisher William Rusher later reminisced, modern American conservatism largely organized itself during and in explicit opposition to the Eisenhower administration. There would be other fallout too from this battle. In another move to appease the conservative wing, Eisenhower, after winning his vote, settled on a running mate quickly, who was a darling of conservatives. Mike's running mate is probably the youngest vice presidential candidate in history. Senator Richard Nixon is only 39. Richard Nixon would be Eisenhower's running mate. 
And he's a fellow we'll return to again and again as we bump down the road on future Whistle Stops. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistle Stops. Send us an email at podcast at slate.com or even better, leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Head over to iTunes.com slash Slate Podcast. Thanks to our sponsor this week, The Great Courses. Remember the great presidents, George Washington, Lincoln, FDR. You can get 80% off that or any of the other top eight offerings at thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. That's thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. Our producer is Mike Vuolo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Whistle Stop is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Whistle Stop Crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald. Here is a man who could never, through plain ignorance of world affairs, be either frightened into concessions to communist blackmail or panicked into rash acts capable of igniting war. I'll be back next week with more Tales from the Trail here on Whistle Stop. I'm John Dickerson. Whistle Stop.